Cafe and Hunt from the Center for Mark Twain Studies at Elmira College. I'm Matt Siebel. Mark Twain was one of the first U.S. novelists to experiment with the genre that would come to be known as science fiction or speculative fiction. This somewhat underappreciated aspect of Twain's legacy came to mind a few months ago when one of the biggest brands in contemporary sci-fi, the Star Wars franchise, revealed that its hit TV series, The Mandalorian, had been produced under the working title Project Huckleberry. For readers of the first two novels in which Huckleberry Finn appears, both realist works set in the Mississippi River Valley during the decades before the American Civil War, Mark Twain's characters may seem poorly fitted to a narrative of a galactic mercenary tasked with the protection of a mystical alien child. But much later in his career, Twain also wrote now Little Red sequels, which fused the characters of Huck and Tom with speculative fiction plotlines. One of my guests today, Nathaniel Williams, has written the book on this period in Twain's career. Gears and Gods, Technocratic Fiction, Faith, and Empire in Mark Twain's America. Nate is a lecturer in the university writing program at University of California, Davis. He is book review editor for the Mark Twain Annual, the official journal of the Mark Twain Circle of America, and serves on the advisory board at the Gunn Center for the Study of Science Fiction at University of Kansas. My other guest for this episode is Emmett Asher Perrin, who is senior staff writer as well as news and entertainment editor at Tor.com, the digital magazine dedicated to sci-fi and fantasy. Among many other things, Emmett wrote Tor's episode recaps for The Mandalorian. They are currently writing recaps of Marvel's WandaVision series, as well as running Tor's Terry Pratchett book club. One minor note. We recorded this episode on February 10th, at the time, Gina Carano was already embroiled in controversy, as Emmett mentions during our conversation, but she had not yet been removed from the show. That happened two days later. I hope you enjoy Project Huckleberry, a.k.a. The Mandalorian. I want to start at the macro level and zoom in. Uh, a historicist critic of speculative fiction and a practicing critic in the mass media ecosystem of contemporary sci-fi and fantasy are both well positioned to discuss the state of franchise entertainment. And here I'm thinking partially of Ben Fritz's book about the transformation of the film industry and the concurrent rise of prestige television, a needle which The Mandalorian threads in really interesting ways. But more concretely, I want to start by discussing what this show is doing for its producers, particularly for Disney and Lucasfilm. The Mandalorian has a lot riding on it. It was expected to be and has proven effective as a magnet show for the launch of Disney's streaming service. It is part of a constantly expanding but also critically embattled Star Wars brand as critics who inevitably were examining these dynamics and how the creators have wrestled with them since it debuted, how would you characterize, or maybe what do you think is most important to understanding The Mandalorian's potentially pivotal place in a canon of multimedia franchises? I can sort of speak to how strange it has been to review this show. I say this to a lot of friends and I say this to people who sort of ask me what I think critically because when I review the episodes, I'm generally very positive in how I talk about the show because I'm talking to fans. But the thing that fascinates me about The Mandalorian is I am so incredibly cognizant of how heavily I'm being manipulated when I watch the show. <laughs> and part of the reason for that is Star Wars and so much franchise media is getting to this point where it gets made in a lab. And you can tell that there are people just pushing, you know, all the little dials and turning things and, you know, manipulating levers. And you know what parts of it are for who. So the Mandalorian himself is, you know, for guys who like Westerns and people who are really into that aspect of it. And, and Baby Yoda is for, his, his name is Grogu now. Baby Yoda is for people who like cute things and who really want to enjoy that part of it. You've got people like me who are great big nerds who enjoy the fact that every single episode, there are a million little Easter eggs. 
and a million little pieces of canon from all over the Star Wars universe that they are threading into this story. And they're using it as this jumping off point for all these different television shows and all of these, you know, potential movie projects coming up. So you're aware of the fact that the show is on some level very, very manipulative toward its audience. It does a good job overall in keeping you entertained regardless, but it can still be a very strange viewing experience when you've kind of got that at the back of your head all the time. Yeah, I, I agree completely. I think it's interesting because it's Star Wars Origins, you know, and that, that 1977 movie is such a synthesis of all these things. So on one hand, it's carrying on that great tradition. On the other hand, there was something very charming about the way the original Star Wars slaps costume drama with a Western, with a war movie, with a Save the Princess fairy tale. I share with Emmett a sense that that charm isn't quite as there in this current iteration of it being kind of a photocopy of a photocopy of a photocopy, which isn't to say I don't enjoy it. I've loved it. I've had a great time watching it because we're talking in the context of Mark Twain. There at Elmire College, you've got the place where Twain worked, the actual octagonal building where he would go and, and spend the whole day writing and smoking and reading and, and maybe be interrupted when somebody brought him food, which for most of us, we sort of see that as the idealized writing experience even still. And as I think you've both pointed out, that's just not how The Mandalorian gets made. <laughs> this is something that has, and I, I, I checked. I mean, John Favreau is, is credited with 12 of the 16 episodes, but there were four credited writers. And we all know that there are legions of continuity editors and storyboard artists and all these other people whose hands are part of developing this thing. So I think that's really an important thing for us to always keep in mind, right? Yeah, and that's in part what generated my first question is one of the people I studied with during graduate school is Jerry Christensen, author of, I believe the book is called Corporate Authorship. And his thesis is essentially that we, we have to start thinking about starting for him in the early 20th century with the film industry. We have to start thinking about movie studios as authors, as opposed to directors as auteurs or screenwriters as authors. We have to think about the sort of corporate brand as author. And that's why I'm particularly interested in The Mandalorian and the ways in which it is representing something that Disney needs or wants or wants to project about itself or that Lucasfilm, perhaps an alternative uh, corporate author, where does this fit in the changing dynamics of those media companies? Yeah, I'm very, the thing that actually fascinates me very much about that is like, I, I was reading a, an interview with Robert Rodriguez who directed an episode of, of season two. Um, and he was talking about the fact that I, I almost lost my mind on this because I remember I was watching the episode and the episode had so many things in it that I liked. It had Boba Fett and it was a really great action sequence at the end of it. But there were so many gaping plot holes in the episode that were driving me nuts. And I read this interview and Robert Rodriguez said that when he was, he was brought on to fill the space by another director. He was brought on to fill that space and Jon Favreau handed him a script. And you know, the episodes are all about half an hour long. And the script apparently that he was handed was like 16 pages. And he told Jon Favreau, okay, just so you know, like the way that I direct, I'll actually probably shave a couple minutes off of this because I tend to direct things very fast paced. And Favreau's response was, no, I need you to add as much as you possibly can. I need you to extend this script so that I've got about double the content that you see on this page. And Robert Rodriguez was like, well, okay, I guess I can, I can do that. I'll figure out what I'm doing. And he did a lot of work with the actors and with the, the action sequences. But I was like, that tells you everything that you need to know. Jon Favreau isn't really writing even much of a story. He's giving you a few pages of this is generally what happens and then make something more happen. And we'll see how we, you know, we move on to the next part of the plot, but it's not, he's not looking to tell a really in-depth emotional drama the way that other people who are writing shows, you know, really big prestige television, like something like Watchmen, for example, or Lovecraft Country. 
there, he's not doing that. He's giving you the bare bones and going, make something out of this, make this bigger, make it do more. That's how the show felt so much to me is that that sense of you're watching a, a scene that is clearly building upon a set of common tropes, you know, the shootout. I'm thinking about the where they're barricaded in the bar at the end of season one. And it's, you know, it's this classic Western shootout scene. And yet it's so stripped down to just it's, you know, the very foundational component parts of that kind of trope. And I felt like that over and over again. And one of the things I liked about your your recap columns, Emmett, was you were constantly pointing to, oh, they're doing heist now. They're doing horror, right? They're, they're building upon all these very popular genre categories, but oftentimes they're not really building much. You're taking the characters that exist in this world and dropping them into this very conventional set of scenes and tropes. But oftentimes it's hard to hold on to some sort of larger ideology or narrative that they're building. And I thought that was one of the struggles, right? Both you're very entertained oftentimes by how well these scenes are made, but also not only are they episodic in that each you know, individual episode kind of restarts a plot in some ways. But even within the episode, it's sort of like, all right, we're gonna jump onto the train now. Oh, and now we're gonna be disguised within in, in an enemy base, right? And these scenes are just kind of formal conventional elements from other mediums and, and other periods, but how they hang together is really thin. Can I ask a couple of, these are questions, but they're they're kind of meta questions. I'm just confirming that I understand this. As I recall, based on the story Emmett told, it used to be a page of a script was about a minute of screen time. That's correct. Okay, so so if you're handed at 16 pages, you don't have a half hour show. No. Right, With, without that embellishment that you're talking about. The other thing is the credit for who is credited for writing a show is actually determined by the Screenwriters Union, whose acronym I forget right now, but seven, eight people may have, done the writing and only two people get attributed. Speaking of Star Wars, Carrie Fisher, Princess Leia herself was one of the great script doctors, not listed as a writer on many of the movies that she wrote on. So just that whole process of construction makes you wonder how they get any kind of continuity. Like you're talking about, Matthew, with, the, with the, a larger narrative where, where a moment in you know episode two clearly has a, a resonant theme in episode six or seven and and how much of that's planned out how much of that is on the fly that's certainly up for grabs and i guess all we can judge it by is you know what we get on the screen that's a job now keeping track of of the the canon is is an actual job that someone has at lucasfilm which is on top of being such a, a fascinating position it's also extra interesting to me when they choose not to make things line up when they say like, okay, we've got someone whose job it is to make sure that all the canon is, is correct, all the continuity stacks, and they go, but right here we're going to change it because we don't like that. They introduced the Timothy Oliphant character in season two, it's Cobb Vance, and he was a character who was created by Chuck Wendig in Star Wars Aftermath. The scene where he gets Boba Fett's armor is on the page. I read that book, it happens. And they just completely changed the scene. They changed the town that he's the marshal of. They changed a lot of stuff. And it was clear that they just went, we'll take a little bit of it, but we're not going to use all of it. At the point at which Lucasfilm is, they're, they're leaning really hard on the fact, and this is actually super important context for Star Wars. For a long time, they had the expanded universe. There were dozens and dozens of novels. There were video games. There were soundtracks to books. There were all sorts of things that they had that were part of what they called canon. And then when Disney bought Lucasfilm, they just went, okay, these are all quote unquote, they are legends. And they have used those legends as the foundation for everything that they have built from that point on. The, you know, they've said now the canon is the canon. All of this stuff that we have marked from this point on counts, but they're still going, but not that bit. <laughs> yeah. And that, that's incredibly hard to, to think about 
because I think you're talking about the audience at that point too. The creators have to keep track of all this and make these decisions. But then one, you've got one of the pickiest audiences in the world, right? So Star Wars fans, and I'm saying this as a member of this club, they notice stuff in continuity and they've been the keepers of the continuity in their own fanzines and, and chat rooms and wherever for all this time. Blogs and outdated. Yeah. Yeah. Very, various iterations of media over basically half a century now that have always had a Star Wars fan base that consumes and creates them. Yeah, exactly. And the other thing is, of course, that they're trying to make The Mandalorian to meet a bunch of these audiences because I'm very aware of they are trying to make a show that somebody can watch if they've just seen the movies. And then there are those of us who bought all the comics I'm going to admit that I, I did not watch the Clone Wars animated show, so I didn't I didn't know who Bo-Katan was, but I was able to handle it just fine. And I think that's something that the Five Rose and Felonies of the world want to hear, because I think as as you're both pointing out, they are painfully aware that there are multiple layers of Star Wars fandom, including people who are as invested, if not more, than the people on the payroll at Lucasfilm. I wonder to what extent those choices, when they when they choose to alter the canon, to what extent are those choices driven by the, this collision of brands, right? Both the collision between Star Wars and Disney and that that sort of merger, but also the need now to think about the franchise's long term health. Most obviously in the show, Timothy Oliphant you know, who's a pretty massive star, shows up, and he shows up typecast into a role that fits with his previous work on Justified and on Deadwood. Rosaria Dawson shows up. So these are pretty big names, and you know these characters with these actors are going to have a long life in this franchise, potentially you know, in movies, in, uh, you know, spin-off television shows, who knows where, you know, where Disney and, and Lucasfilm are planning to take this. And I wonder to what extent, when they make decisions that have the potential to upset the core fan base, are they doing so specifically because they're trying to work in these various brands, you know, television, movie, star brands that they need to continue the new iterations. Yeah, I do think that there there's an element of concern over where everything is going to go and how they're going to keep all of this stuff together. I mean, when they said that they were going to bring on Ahsoka Tano, that was such a big deal, but not at all surprising because she was the most important character that had been created in those cartoons. Her whole storyline was incredibly well executed. It's some of the best storytelling that they've done. I'm not surprised when I see them make those little changes. It, I think it tips their hand in a way that they're not aware that it does, of where they want to go and what they're going to be using. When they changed, for example, that introduction with Cobb Vanth, I was like, okay, so they don't need... When he originally gets this armor, he gets it around this guy who is basically like a crime syndicate gang member. He has an argument with him about who's going to get the armor. There's a whole thing that happens there. And I was like, okay, so you're not going to use that character. You're not going to go down that road. And also, more importantly, you're doing it the way you're doing it because you want Cobb Vanth to be likable. Which in the book, he's not that big of a deal. They didn't really take the same characterization. They went, we're going to have Timothy Oliphant play him. He's going to be charming as heck. And we're going to continue to build this around him to let him be charming. That sort of thing does does let the audience know if you're paying attention and you know all those little bits. You can tell what what matters to them and where they're going to go with it. Maybe this is a good segue into thinking about an alternative franchise that this show is invoking. It was revealed now almost two years after The Mandalorian launched that its working title was Project Huckleberry. Maybe Nate can start being uh, a Twain scholar. To what extent do you think that illusion plays a role in the storytelling for The Mandalorian? It's interesting because when I heard the Project Huckleberry reveal, my first reference was Tombstone, which made sense in terms of a Western. Then to think about Twain, it sort of opens up all these other sort of areas, particularly in this idea of, you know, a picaresque kind of story of someone 
having sort of unrelated adventures and growing through them. Yeah. Now we've got Din Djarin's tale and, and we see how the interaction with, with baby Grogu is going to, to do this. And that element of it makes perfect sense in terms of building on a Twain template. And even the idea of having a character who's masked. The only way we get to judge his transformation is through actions and decisions that he makes, right? That sounds like something straight out of a, of, a, of an upperclassman's paper on Huck. You know, Huck doesn't seem to change, but then we notice that his actions, right? I think that element is, is definitely there as well. The thing that actually fascinates me about that, if, you, if you're relating Din Djarin's story to, to Huck's, is the idea that part of the transformation that he learns is that the world isn't what he thought it was based on the worldview that he'd been raised with. And that's really important for Din And the idea that you end up finding out in season two that he's actually been raised by a radical cult sect of Mandalorian culture. Mm-hmm. So you have actually a character who is learning that his perspectives on, on the world or the galaxy are not at all what he was taught throughout the majority of his life. Yeah, I think that's a wonderful point, right? The the orphan caught in some sort of filter bubble, right? Very much like Huck living in Antebellum, Missouri, surrounded by an assumption that slavery is the natural order of things and then being thrown into the stream of life and discovering that not everybody necessarily believes the same things that he was taught to believe. It's in some ways a rationalization of the episodic structure, right? Which it was for Twain as well, right? Is how do I come up with a narrative that allows me to tell whatever story I want, to use whatever tropes I want, because this person is moving so rapidly through a very diverse and vast world. I really want to be thinking about what are the larger politics of this show? And one of the things that struck me about your work, Nate, that you're one of the few scholars who have substantively tackled the late career attempt to extend and expand Twain's own branded universe, right? Tom Sawyer and Huckleberry Finn. And much like Star Wars, in those late Huck and Tom novels, Twain leans so heavily, almost heavy-handedly sometimes, on political allegory, particularly within the context of his own surging anti-imperialism. How does he grapple with the Roosevelt era in the context of these characters who are in an entirely different time? And I think that that's one of the things that's really interesting about Star Wars, too, is you have an original Star Wars brand that was built for the Cold War. And now it is adapting into an entirely different time period, but still almost depends upon drawing upon a kind of political allegory. And so I was wondering, Nate, first, to what extent do you think that Twainian resonance is part of how the Huckleberry name works here. I have no idea if if the writers have read the, the unfinished sequel, the uh, Huck Finn and Tom Sawyer Among the Indians, but certainly there's a scene in, in season two where they interact with the Tusken Raiders, who were always Star Wars Tatooine's version of, of the indigenous peoples on the West. Of course, if you've read Mark Twain's unfinished novel, it, his whole point to that was to lampoon and make fun of Cooper's noble Native American type. And so his Plains Indians are are downright evil. And he sees that as realism, right? He thinks he's deflating a romantic idea when he's actually sort of portraying a, a much more simplistic of many peoples, right? Twain starts his sequels for, for Huck and Tom with that kind of ideology. And and then by 1894 is using Tom on an airship, right? So it's a science fiction story. He's on an airship going to Africa and behaving like an awful American. As Twain wrote these sequels with decades in between them, his politics changed. If if you've read Kerry Driscoll's book, Mark Twain among uh, among the Indians, among the, among the Indians and other indigenous peoples, right? I mean, she she gets that very clearly that he had multiple feelings and sometimes contradictory feelings about uh, the different groups that he encountered, but he clung to that disdain for Native Americans throughout his life. 
But as a world traveler, he certainly had a growing disdain for white Americans and the way that they assumed that they had some kind of power there. Now, I, I don't know how that ties directly to the Star Wars tropes and the Mandalorian, but I mean, I certainly think it ties to science fiction because I think the way he got there was Connecticut Yankee, right? I mean, once he once he played through a time travel motif uh, where if you injected this technology into Arthurian times, how would it work out? He had to confront the idea that, okay, all this Western civilization building really starts to fall apart. In the Star Wars galaxy, what we have are two different entities with contradictory opinions about what civilization should be. So maybe that's the the angle that Disney and Lucasfilm are giving us. I'll be very interested to see where the show ends up going in terms of, uh, obviously, we've got sort of the question about whether or not they're going to reclaim Mandalore. And there's a lot sort of going on with the fledging New Republic and how it's going to be governing the galaxy. I was sort of disappointed in the most recent season because they they did a lot of the sort of, the New Republic are cops. And that means that they're really like not good people. And I'm like, cool, but what you had before was fascism. So we actually need to talk about how there's, there is a delineation line here between like people who are trying to create a government that's for all people and Nazis, like they're not the same thing. <laughs> That's a great point because you know, in in the frontier literature of the the eighteen seventies, I mean, that is that motif of these people out here don't really care who's in charge. Nobody cares whether the north or the south wins. Of course, a lot of people did care very much. It's a privilege to be out on the frontier and not have to worry about that kind of stuff. And so it's it's a little sad that because this storyline is so much about the frontier that they have to have characters voicing that. It's a bad hangover from that era's writing. It is, absolutely. For me, one of the troubling things about the show is that it so often lacks a sort of transparent politics, which isn't necessarily a bad thing, although I do think that that lack of transparency often has to do with a lack of substance. But that when it does have moments of sort of bursting into some sort of ideological conversation or commitment, oftentimes it shows a kind of sympathy for imperialism. Is this a kind of imperial apologia? Werner Herzog's character, just before he's killed in the first season, asks in no uncertain terms whether or not life is better after empire. And obviously his is not a character whose politics we are supposed to endorse or empathize with. Yet I think that question hangs over the whole project. Is this multilateral pluralistic society developing in the wake of the empire's fall any less violent, any more just, any less exploitative, any more effective at bringing liberty and prosperity to a polyphonous multicultural galaxy. What Nate brought up about Twain's relationship to different indigenous peoples is also a vein running through the show where you have the Mandalorian himself who shows incredible sympathy to some kinds of indigenous peoples and outsider characters, and then none whatsoever to other. What's it, is it Muggsy, Migsy? The former Imperial Guard calls him out on that at one point is basically like, you don't really have a whole lot of room to talk about empire because you're making the same kind of arbitrary, prejudiced, interested decisions all the time. You recognize the right to life of baby Yoda, but you kill other people often, oftentimes at random. This nihilism, which I think Nate's right, comes out of frontier, comes out of the Western myth, nihilistic justice, right? A, a collision of nihilism and revenge fantasy. There is a real danger in reading this as a apology for imperialism. It's, it's pretty messed up because the, the plot line with Megs in season two really bothered me because they've told this story before and done it better. And this is actually one of the things that I find interesting because of course, John Favreau is working very closely with Dave Filoni, who is responsible for both the, the TV shows, The Clone Wars and Star Wars Rebels. And Dave Filoni is a die in the wool fanboy from birth. He's just, you know, just adores this universe more than anything and loves George Lucas and loves everything that he created. But Dave Filoni has a better grasp most of the time 
on where the lines are and what we actually are meant to critique. And my problem with what they did with Migs is I completely understand if this, if this show was actually a little bit more morally gray in a consistent way, I think that you could get away with a story like this, where the point is like, yeah, okay, so he's not really a sympathetic person, but in this moment he has a flashback, he remembers how horribly he was treated by his superiors, he gets angry, he kills that guy, it causes this whole sort of explosion, and, and now everyone sort of goes, okay, we'll leave you be, you paid your dues. But in Star Wars Rebels, there is a character named Alexander Callus. He's, he's a member of the Imperial Security Bureau. And he fights against the main antagonist crew of the Ghost throughout a good portion of the series. And about halfway through, he gets stuck on an ice planet with Gerizeb Aurelius. He is a, a species called a Lasat. And you find out that the Empire basically committed genocide against his people. And they hate each other. And they fight throughout this entire episode. And then by the end, they come to sort of one of those like warrior detentes where they're like, okay, we recognize that we both believe that we're doing the right thing. And we're going to go our separate ways. Callus very quickly realizes that he's not doing the same thing, that he's doing something terrible, that he has no friends, that there is no support in the empire. And he becomes a double agent. He defects. He starts off by giving, like, feeding them information under a code name. There's a whole long arc that happens with him where they really delve into this idea of what would you have to do to make up for doing these horrific things? And he does it. And Miggs doesn't. But yet we're supposed to like him. And I wonder how much that has to do with Bill Burr, right? right? They, again, we're bringing in the brand of a very well-known actor who is in some ways telegraphing. We're, we're supposed to have some affection for this character because he's played by Bill Burr, who we don't necessarily, at least I didn't expect to show up in a Star Wars franchise, right? They don't have to do the storytelling work because the brand of the actor is already doing a certain amount of that work for them. Where they've chosen to set this series is difficult. I mean, democracy is messy. And so ending with the destruction of Death Star number two, great place to end a film. It was so good they did it twice in three films. Actually dealing with constructing a new, better civilization, it, it doesn't lend itself real well to drama in the way that a Western does where, I think as you said, Matt, it's, a lot of that is the fantasy of self, utter self-sufficiency, right? That's, that's the frontier thing going all the way back to Cooper and beyond. That just doesn't lend itself as well to a nuanced way of viewing politics. And I don't see them taking this series into the halls of the new Senate anytime soon. Which is unfortunate because I think that, you know, this is one of the problems that sci-fi has is that, you know, at least Western sci-fi has built itself so heavily on these tropes. I have friends who I talk about this issue with where we're like, why doesn't more sci-fi want to do this, this work? Where we go like, what happens after the Hunger Games? What happens after the second Death Star? What happens after you've broken everything down? People actually do want to know that. They like it when fiction tackles things like that. It, it would actually be great to see Star Wars do more of that. I mean, and everyone likes to talk about the prequels as though they're part of that problem where they're like, George Lucas did that and everyone thought it was boring. And I'm like, it's, it's not his fault that he did it in a really boring way. This stuff is still interesting. <laughs> House of Cards, but in the Star Wars Senate. Right, really exactly. Good. Speaking of properties that Disney has also invested in, uh, you know, you can make it a hip hop musical. It's four hours long and, and I'll pay to see it every exactly. time. Right? People flock to Hamilton, which is exactly that. Clearly it can be done. You can have a really interesting, uh, intellectually satisfying uh, and emotionally satisfying story about building up from the end of the revolution. It's just, it's got to be done a certain way. It probably is a lot harder than, you know, 16 episodes uh, that all have to have a certain amount of special effects in them. I feel like part of the problem is that they think that that kind of stuff works better with kids. So the Clone Wars cartoon has so many episodes that are totally focused on politics. And they made that show for children, little kids. And I think it's because they're like, adults won't like that. Adults don't like things that are that weird or that thoughtful. And they make this weird assumption 
where like there are episodes in that that goofy show that are like here's a half an hour of hut politics and i was like i love this this is what i want to see there's another twain connection right there right that Tom Sawyer, is it a boy's book? Is it not? People have been debating that since Twain wrote his introduction, certainly with Huck Finn. You know, is this for adults or is this for kids? And, and you know, he published Tom Sawyer Abroad in a, in a serialized it in a magazine that was made to be an antidote to dime novels, right? The St. Nicholas magazine was supposed to give young people something good to read. And that's the one where he puts the heavy handed satire on American imperialism. So yeah, I, I mean, Emmett, you're totally onto it that sometimes the really great political commentary gets put into the things designed for young people. And it's more effective that way. That choice of the new republic, it's such a an interesting one because of its anachronism, right? That use was started in the 1970s and now we we have moved into a time where both republicanism the partisan brand has some problems and republicanism the political philosophy also has some problems and the ways in which it is invoked are oftentimes deeply xenophobic and ag aggressively anti-democratic and so to have that idea of republicanism being the named philosophy of this supposedly reform-based governance opens up all sorts of problems right on its face. And as Emmett pointed out earlier, to then also have the New Republic almost always represented as either military police officers, right, who are entering into situations to claim their monopoly on violence, or as prison guards, really places them in an unfortunate position given the politics of our particular moment. I do wonder to what extent that's intentional and to what extent the, the show is going to be able to, to, to provide some sort of synthesis, right, that these are not the only choices. It's not just fascist empire or uh, police state, right? that there, there has to be some redemptive spokesperson for the multilateral, pluralist, not globalist, but galaxyist society that is supposedly being built. But we're not seeing that building happening. And I wonder if we are going to see that building happening at any point, either in this show or elsewhere in the, the franchise universe. Yeah, they're working on so many different, and they're doing, the, the thing that actually sort of, I find a little disappointing is, the, the era that they are now refocusing on is an era they're calling the High Republic. It's set about, I believe, 300 years before what we see in the prequels. The way that they are billing it is the Camelot version of the Republic. Like, here is when the Jedi were in their heyday and everything was great, and you're going to see the start of Sith problems and all this stuff. And it's unfortunate, because I do think that they don't really know what to do. Every once in a while, you'll get a really good book. There's a really good book called Bloodline, which is about Leia's time in the New Republic government, and basically how everyone ends up finding out that she's Darth Vader's kid. And the book is really well done, and it does political intrigue really well, and it does a really good job of showing what it's like for Leia doing this as her job every single day, and the expectations of that. They seem to really think that they're that it's going to be boring, or maybe they're worried about how it's going to interfere with whatever they did afterward. Like, I think that they're very worried about, we did another trilogy, the First Order happened, it destroys the government, do we really want to see people building a government that we know is going to get exploded in a couple years? Because <laughs> that does happen. It's interesting, too, with the multimedia element, because we've already talked about that a little bit, but yeah, that the books have become the acceptable place to have that kind of meaty subject matter, to really deal with this Whereas, you know, that kind of thing is just might be a single line yeah. in an episode of Mandalorian. Like, yeah, and it must have been hard for Leia to when all those people found out she was, which it, it doesn't have that line for those of you listening who, who haven't who haven't watched the show. <laughs> but it's that kind of thing. A lot of the television adaptations is, is kind of this tossed off thing. And I, I do want to throw one other wrench into what Matt was saying about the Republic, because I do think that's 
definitely part of it. One of the things I've noticed is I, I believe, and correct me, I think this is pretty consistent across the Star Wars platforms. Um, Emmett, you'll know this, but it's, it's only the people in the New Republic. It's only the rebels who say, may the force be with you. Yes, that is true. So, so, I mean, again, there's definitely the sense that the quasi-mystical, the spiritual people belong to that, and the, the fascists are therefore marked as not spiritual, right? Which is, is a, a less complicated way to deal with it. And, and it does confuse me why they're going to move into this sort of old republic or high republic era when it's pretty clear from the, the prequels, right, that people who believe they are led spiritually do not necessarily fall into line with a Senate or a democratically elected body. We have seen that throughout history. And when one of the groups has lightsabers, I assume it could be even worse. Yeah, definitely. I think that one of the things that worries me, and Emmett's anecdote about the 16-page script speaks to this as well, is that they think The Mandalorian is an apolitical show. Oh, yes. And that the Disney Lucas film approach to this is we're going to do genre specifically because it is not going to be infected by the politics around it, which is a common corporate illusion. That's how we end up with an actually incredibly problematic politics instead of one that's sort of richly explored and thought out and opens up all sorts of points and counterpoints. Instead, we're, we're basically left with the idea that the choice is either fascism or neoliberal police state right? at exactly the moment where we're all desperately looking for something else. <laughs> no, it's true. And I think this is, I mean, going to be, I think, a, a much larger problem going forward. I mean, all the all the media that we watch now is getting franchised out. Everything is going to be part of a collection yeah. and part of a universe and part of a shared storytelling system. I mean, we've already seen it with, with the Marvel Cinematic Universe. It's all about money because we live in capitalism and they go, okay, I, w I want everyone to love this. So we have to make it as inoffensive as possible. And they just keep sort of pulling things out and trying their best to not get anyone upset on any front. They're having this problem now where Gina Carano, the actor who plays Cara Dune, has been saying really scary stuff on social media. She started off by being sort of weirdly transphobic about pronouns, and then it turned into some sort of really not good anti-Semitism. She moved over onto the Parlay app, and, and she's been doing stuff over there. And people are finally saying, you know, like, what's it going to take for Disney to fire this person? Because what she's doing is really not great. You know that the answer is Disney would like to just say, we have nothing to do with that. This has nothing to do with us. This is a person. They're allowed to have their opinion, and we don't want to have to step in here. And I think that they're going to run into this problem more and more as they do this, and as they continue to create these big, big universes and continue to insist that there's nothing political about them. You get it from things that should be very obvious. There are plenty of people who, who love Star Trek who don't seem to understand that it's supposed to be about a future where things get to be diverse. You get people trying to tell apolitical stories like this and claim that they can be apolitical when they're telling stories, which is just not how fiction works at all. There's no such thing as apolitical fiction. Yeah, it comes back to the very first question I asked. When you're trying to tell an apolitical story, the politics become the id of the corporation. And the id of Disney is imperialism, right? If they try to be apolitical, and it is just a representation of Disney's culture, what more corporate imperialist brand is there than Disney, right? Inevitably, their sympathies are going to trend towards the imperialists. Which I think is part of the reason why you get stories that then take so much more from the Western aspect of Star Wars and practically nothing from Kurosawa, the incredible like legacy of Asian storytelling that has led to everything that you get in Star Wars, the Force and the Jedi and all of this. Right. It all comes from all of those you know, samurai films and they lean very far away from that while leaning very heavily toward the Western aspect. That is a genre that is missing 
in the Mandalorian, despite all of its, you know, the orgy of genres that it is trying to use, the Kung Fu film, the samurai film that were certainly part of the original trilogy. And they'll put Asian actors in it and they'll put Asian inspired, you know, they'll put martial arts fight sequences, but we're not really seeing the storytelling aspect of what Kurosawa did. Yeah, I'm not an expert on Japanese cinema and and manga, but the one that they did build from was Lone Wolf and Cub, right? Yes. Which I, th- which is a, a famous manga from, I believe, late 50s, early 60s. I mean, it's the same era that Kurosawa is, is putting out things like Yojimbo. But it came, it came over at least to the U.S. I, I don't think people were really aware of it until the 80s. Yes, I believe when, so. When it was adapted into film, I, re- I recall it was, it was seen as sort of like a midnight movie version of Kurosawa. It was much more about how many heads are going to roll than about what's the social dynamic here between having one cast that just has the weapons and another cast that just farms the fields and that kind of thing. So it's interesting that that was the samurai part that they wanted to go with. That was the samurai story that they pulled from when they did make a choice to acknowledge that. It wasn't the, the messier kind of tradition. If you want to think about Mark Twain as a science fiction writer, that is, it's it, you got to remember that that wasn't a a genre, right? He didn't have words for what he was doing in stuff like a Connecticut Yankee or or Tom Sawyer Broad. All he knew was satirical voyage fiction like Swift. He knew the tradition of the utopia like Thomas More, and then his contemporary in France, Jules Verne, whom he hated. He disliked Verne immensely, partly because he said that he had started work on a balloon voyage novel and had to stop it when Verne's Five Weeks in a Balloon was published. It's professional jealousy uh, of, of somebody got to my idea first. It's, it's not about the quality of the work. I just love that that's like a Twitter shit post now. Like that's what you, where you would see that. And Twain knew that people were going to read his letters. Yeah. Right? I mean, <laughs> Twain scholars know like there's a point in, in, in which you're looking at Twain's correspondence at the, at the papers in, in Berkeley and realize, oh yeah, he expected people to pour over these things. So yeah, it, that, that was right. The, the 19th century version of a Twitter shit post. Yeah. One of the things that I'm doing right now at work is I'm running a Terry Pratchett book club. So of course you've got like a satirist who's actually working within the realms of science fiction and fantasy on purpose. I mean, satirists are so aware of, of politics in a way that people who create other forms of genre are often not. And I think that it's interesting to look at people like Twain and people like Pratchett and how they try to make the political messages work within their stories. But the other thing that that I remember is sort of similarly to how like Twain never really gets over the fact that he unfortunately is very against indigenous peoples and he's, you know, very racist in that particular way. Pratchett never said or did anything that was in any way that outrageous. But I'm currently on his book Pyramids. Uh, in which he's basically satirizing Egyptian culture through a very British, very classicist, you know, lens. And I think that it's really telling that he can't quite make the satire work as well as he normally does, because he doesn't understand the culture well enough. And I think that you run into that problem a lot with things like Mandalorian, when you're trying to create an apolitical story, people think that they can be apolitical because they don't understand that they are bringing their own perspective to it, whether they mean to or not. And I think that you run into that problem with the show very frequently. Like, I keep watching it and going, like, here is the first live action fight sequence that I've seen between two female characters. Every single main character on the screen right now is a person of color. There's so many good things that the show is doing and that it's trying to do, that it's doing on purpose. But you can't get away from the fact that it's still ultimately a show that was developed by a cisgender straight white man who lives in America, who has a very specific view on what the world is supposed to be like. Just pull on those two threads together. Again, I keep going back to the the moment in which the show very briefly becomes aware of and interested in its own political commitments is through Bill Burr, in that penultimate episode, Burr's character is doing so much work in part because I think we're supposed to find him funny. Yes. Humor becomes the vehicle that you can use to make more complex political statements, right? When Burr says something like, 
you know, it seems to me like your rules start to change when you get desperate, right? Is is it, can you take off your helmet or show your face? Because there's a difference. Everybody's got this line that they don't cross until things get messy, right? That the, he's sort of pointing at the ways where the hero story uh, or the Western story starts to crumble or fray at the edges. And he can do that because we're supposed to sort of laugh at him, both because of the actor and because of the way the character is constructed, which again, I always find that a little bit lazy when a show that isn't a comedy or isn't a satire uses those tropes in order to insert political commitments, but not with too much clarity. This is something that Twain always struggled with the extent to which humor was actually delegitimizing. Certainly moments in his career where he turns expressly to sentimentality, expressly to polemic, in order to, to speak something that he doesn't want to be mistaken as a joke. And I don't think this show is ready to do that. No. They they have that moment at the beginning of the episode where the character is, he's doing his shtick, as it were, and he's giving everybody a hard time while they're making their plan, and he makes a super sexist joke, and they just have Boba Fett stop and look at him like, I'll kill you if you open your mouth again like that. And I was like, this is a really interesting way of handling this, but you're going to let him do the rest of his usual stuff. You just wanted to make sure that we were clear on the fact that you can't make really lazy, sexist jokes. <laughs> so he's going to use his toxic masculinity to prevent toxic masculinity, right? right? <laughs> sure. That's definitely how it works, right? <laughs> <laughs> so is there anything that you are hoping for? This show is taking a long layoff and coming back for a third season, and it's obviously wildly popular, and I think will probably be maybe even more popular when it returns, because people will have caught up. What are what are some things that you're looking for in season three? I really want them to address what it's like to try to deprogram yourself from a cult. Yeah. <laughs> I think they've they've gone so far with Din Jaren in, in this idea of like, now he's taken off his helmet in front of people. He gave up everything for Grogu. Now Grogu is gone. Maybe he's going to get murdered by Kylo Ren later on. We have no idea. He's dealing with a lot of stuff and they're actually not giving him any room to process it. They're moving right along. They're going like, got to get to the next action sequence. Got to get to the next plot point. Pedro Pascal's a really great actor. I want to get them to give him room to really work with that. Could they possibly do this as like these two tandem stories? One of Din Djarin leaves his cult and the other being Grogu goes to the Jedi Council where he's now going to be immersed in a belief system that, you know, this is not the way, right? This is going to be very different from what his father figure for the last long period has, has said that sounds like a really interesting show to watch yeah that sounds great thank you both thank you yeah thank you that was nate williams with emmett asher parent this has been an episode of the american vandal for more information about our podcast and all center for mark twain studies programming please visit marktwainstudies.org. Thank you for listening.